I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15. The reading of the Word of God will begin at uh, verse 1. Before we hear the Word of God, let us receive the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism concerning the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we read responsively. What benefit do we receive from the resurrection of Christ? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death that he might make us share in the righteousness which he has obtained for us through his death. Second, we too are now raised by his power to a new life. Third, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. I call your attention to the scripture verses uh, printed there uh, for your further study on which the catechism is based. Now let us ask the Lord to bless his word to us. Our Father, we give you thanks that in your love for us you speak your truth to us. We thank you for your word written, inspired by the Holy Spirit to train us how to live as your people, the redeemed, the disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that your spirit would open our minds and open our hearts, that your spirit would do the work of your word in our lives to transform us more nearly into the likeness of Jesus Christ so that our church family would manifest and live out the realities of your heavenly kingdom in our midst, even now on earth. We ask it in Jesus' name for the sake of your glory. Amen. The word of God, it is written. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever to his name. Be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Imagine, if you will, imagine the almighty creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One, the righteous judge, opening the front door of his heavenly home and saying to you, 
welcome. In a way, that imaginary scenario is a picture parable of the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The doctrine which is the central thesis of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. What is the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone mean? Well, at least one thing it means is that the holy and righteous Creator welcomes into His presence sinners who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all their sins. On the basis of Christ's death and resurrection, God the Father accepts sinners as righteous in His sight and adopts them as His children, a child in the home. That's as welcome as anyone could ever be anywhere. Now, this is the reason that the Apostle Paul wrote in chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we might refer to this as our vertical relationship with God as individuals. Our right standing with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says in Romans 4.25, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. But our vertical relationship with God through justification by faith alone in Christ alone also has implications and applications for our horizontal relationships within the church of Jesus Christ, relationships with our fellow believers. The cross, please note, the cross has a horizontal beam as well as a vertical beam. And in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul addresses those horizontal relationships among Christians. Now, Pastor Jonathan very ably preached through Romans 14 before we took the detour for Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Easter, and last Sunday. So now after a month's interruption, we return to Romans and to chapter 15, which continues to speak to us about the horizontal relationships within the church. But what I want you to see, here's the big idea. Don't get lost in the details. Here's the big idea. If, that is, since God has welcomed us as his children through Jesus Christ, the vertical beam, Since God has welcomed us through Christ, then we also ought to welcome our brothers and sisters in Christ, the horizontal beam. So here's the deal. This is the horizontal outworking. This is the horizontal application of the vertical doctrine 
of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what I want you to get. God has welcomed us through Christ. Therefore, we are to welcome one another in Christ. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, this is a continuation of Paul's instructions, which began back at chapter 14, verse 1, which says, and listen, listen to the language, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Another translation says, without quarreling over disputable matters. So in these verses, the words strong and weak are not general terms. It's not about weak faith or strong faith in general. This is about a very specific situation in the first century church in Rome, but there are applications of relevance for us today. Paul is addressing tensions, disagreements, and quarreling over opinions or disputable matters. Now listen, these opinions or disputable matters are not, have not to do with essential doctrines of the Christian faith or about clearly revealed matters of biblical morality and Christian ethics. No, these are opinions or disputable matters. They have more to do with personal scruples and sensibilities of conscience. And these tensions arose because the first century church in Rome was comprised of both Jewish Christians, that is, people of Jewish ethnic identity, who had become believers in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, and also in the church in Rome, Gentile Christians, non-Jewish people, who before their Christian conversion had lived as Greco-Roman pagans, worshiping the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. Now, I want you to think about this. For at least, at least some 1,300 to 1,400 years, at least since the time of the exodus from Egypt, Jews and Gentiles had never had anything good to do with one another. They weren't friends. They didn't associate with one another. There was an ethnic, social, cultural, religious wall of hostility between them. All of the dietary laws and other ceremonial laws that you read, for example, in the book of Leviticus, were intended by God at that time to keep his old covenant people, Israel, separated from the pagan Gentile peoples. Old covenant Israel was holy to the Lord, separated from all the nations of the earth. And meanwhile, the Gentiles of the world did not have the law of God, did not have the Ten Commandments, They didn't have the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as part of their identity. They they weren't in the, they didn't receive the covenant promises of God. They never worshiped the true, one and only true and living God, but instead worshiped dead idols. 
Think about all of the, the differences in social, cultural, religious customs and traditions. Jews and Gentiles were foreigners to one another. They were alienated from one another. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles were being brought together in the same congregation, under one roof, sitting at the same table, rubbing elbows with one another. You think there might have been a little natural friction? You think? I have a really good friend who lives elsewhere. And when, when someone moves to that town from another part of the country and joins that church, my friend might be heard to say, well, they're just different. <laughs> you know what that's about, don't you? It's hard to move to Monroe unless you've got some kind of inside connection. Some people have to live here a long time before they feel truly welcome. But in the first century church in Rome, it wasn't merely a matter of customs, traditions, and social sensibilities. It was that, but also there were deeply ingrained religious habits and convictions as well, especially among the Jewish Christians who were in the minority in the church in Rome. Now you think about it. All of their life, they had been taught to avoid certain kinds of meat. What if when they sat down at family night supper, they weren't sure whether the meat was clean or unclean according to the Old Testament law which all their life had shaped their conscience. It would quite naturally trouble their conscience. Is it really okay to eat that now? Or even worse, what if, what if that meat which had been bought in the market had previously been sacrificed to a pagan idol. That was a very real possibility. Now, if you had been a Jew all of your life with 1,300 to 1,400 years of religious training accrued in your soul, how do you think you would feel about eating meat? that had been sacrificed to an idol in a pagan temple. If you tried it, you would probably choke on it. But the Gentile Christian sitting next to you would be going back for seconds without thinking about it. And how would you feel about that they're just different 
about all those old covenant feast days that you and your ancestors for 1,300 years had observed, each with its own special meaning and memories? Were you just supposed to give those up now that you were in the new covenant through faith in Christ? How difficult would that have been? How difficult would it be to go to church with people who didn't know anything and couldn't care less about your hallowed feast days and religious traditions. All right, now, can you feel it a little bit? Can you feel it a little bit? These religious scruples, these religious sensibilities of the Jewish Christians on the one hand and on the other, the insensitivity of the Gentile Christians toward them with an air of spiritual superiority, had the potential to cause division and factionalism in the church in Rome. Even though it was true, and yes, it is true, as Paul himself wrote, everything is indeed clean. Paul, a Jew, agreed with the Gentile Christians. Everything is clean. You're free to eat it. Because he understood the liberty of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The old had passed away. The new had come. But nevertheless, what was Paul's instructions? We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Don't criticize. Don't sneer at. Don't scoff at. Don't treat with disdain those who have scruples of conscience and don't force them or tempt them to act against their conscience. Respect them. Honor them, accept them, welcome them. Paul continues, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In other words, relate to your brother or sister in Christ that are in ways that are going to encourage their faith, not tear it down. Why? Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell on me. Psalm 69. That quote from Psalm 69 is a prophecy of Jesus who, for the sake of our salvation, suffered for the sins which we committed against God in order to benefit us. And then in verse 4, Paul reminds us that Psalm 69 has not only to do with Jesus, but has applications for us. Because as Paul says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So now we're going to connect the dots. If Christ humbled himself in that way in relationship to us, then we also ought to humble ourselves in relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? It keeps going. Verse 4, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And what's Paul's point? How do the verses connect? Paul's point is that living as the body of Christ on earth requires endurance. We're in it for the long haul. And therefore, it requires encouragement. We need to be encouraged in faith in order to endure. And the scriptures give us that encouragement. And in this case, encouraging us to please our neighbor for his good, to build him up, so that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance needs encouragement. 
And encouragement builds us up in hope. And hope empowers our endurance. Paul is telling the church in Rome, and the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Scripture today, is telling us to keep moving in the upward, heavenward direction with our hope set on the kingdom of God, building up one another by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us and not quarreling over personal opinions or disputable matters, not dividing over personal scruples and sensibilities of conscience on issues which do not violate the clearly revealed word of God. So, now, how might this apply to us today? We don't live in first century Rome, and we aren't concerned about meat offered to idols or Old Testament Jewish feasts. It's hard to make direct comparisons or to find perfect analogies. But let's try. Let's think about it. This was written for our instruction. We're sitting in a beautiful location in what's commonly called North Monroe. But we have faithful members who live all over Washita Parish and on the outer edges of Washita Parish and even beyond Washita Parish. This is not a little neighborhood chapel. We come from different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and increasingly from different backgrounds of church experience. And that's a very good thing. And it reflects the kingdom of God as long as we don't let those differences keep us from getting to know one another, growing in love for one another, and truly welcoming one another. In the new sanctuary, we'll have lots of room for new members, some of whom, God willing, may not look like us. May God be so pleased but who will be attracted to us not because of external similarities, but because of a shared commitment to the glory of God, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the authority of the Holy Scripture. And others may not be from around here, but may have moved here from far away, far away from their family, their friends, and their church home, and deeply desire to be welcomed into a new church family in which they can grow, worship, and serve. Are we ready to welcome them as Christ has welcomed us in the bond of his love? And welcome them not only on Sunday mornings with a smile, that's easy to do, but welcome them into our lives, into our homes as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
A few other examples and illustrations come to mind, but, but you know, please understand, these are not perfect analogies, but, but perhaps they are applicable, having to do with personal convictions of conscience, scruples, and sensibilities. Uh, another thing about the, um, the new sanctuary, we're going to have, as we have here, we're going to have beautiful stained glass windows. Now, it might surprise you to know that those beautiful stained glass windows might have seriously offended the, sense of the religious sensibilities of our Presbyterian ancestors. And even some Presbyterian purists today. On the grounds that they visually distract from the audible preaching of the word. And that the artistry is, you know, has been inherited from the Roman Catholic tradition. That may surprise you. But that's the reason that the Puritan congregational meeting houses in New England don't have stained glass windows. All right? Religious scruple, religious sensibility. It's not our issue. It's it's, it's not our issue. It's not going to be an issue. We've got stained glass windows. We're kind of over that. But it's an example. Um, Now, another of the most common, and I believe that Pastor Jonathan mentioned it, has to do with alcohol consumption. For some, absolute abstinence is a matter of personal conviction, and it is a conviction worthy of utmost honor and respect. For others, partaking in moderation, moderation without drunkenness, is a matter of Christian liberty. We need not make a big deal about that one way or the other. Um, Another example, I know of some congregations in which tensions and factions arise because some parents send their children to public school. Other parents send their children to attend a secular private school. Others to a truly, distinctively Christian school. And some are homeschooled, all based on personal conviction. And factions arise because of the various deeply held personal convictions about the education of children in the church family with, you know, every family thinking that their conviction is the only right one. Well, as a matter of fact, I do have a personal conviction about this, and it's a pretty strong personal conviction. And if you ask me personally, in private, if you're seeking my counsel... I will tell you. (laughs) But the pastor isn't pushing his opinion from this pulpit. And you don't have to agree with my personal private conviction or anyone else's in order to be a welcome member of this congregation. Another example, we are a Presbyterian congregation. We administer the sacrament of baptism to infant children of believers on the basis of God's covenant with believers and their children. 
I am convinced, I am absolutely convinced from Scripture that it is right to do so. But I also know that not every Bible-believing Christian is convinced of that. And I also know that if you were raised a Baptist, it can be a pretty big turn to get to the Reformed position. I've had that conversation hundreds of times. But guess what? There's no mention about baptism in our membership vows. You can be a welcome member of this congregation without affirming the validity of covenantal baptism. And we are a Presbyterian congregation. You can't be an elder or a deacon without affirming the validity of covenantal baptism, but you can be a welcome member. Did you know, here's another one, did you know that there are some people in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition who sing only psalms, some unaccompanied by music, by instrumentation. They sing only the biblical psalms set to rhyme and meter. It is an honorable, very historic practice of the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition based on their convictions about biblical worship. And sometimes at a conference, when I'm with very good friends who hold this conviction, when we stand to sing a hymn, not a a psalm-based hymn, a hymn, they stand respectfully, but they do not sing. And then at that conference, when we sing a psalm, they sing with gusto from memory. But it's never a cause for contention. Now here... In covenant, we sing psalms set to rhyme and meter, but we also sing hymns and contemporary songs that are not based on the psalms. So that's not really our our issue, but one thing we're never going to do, as long as I'm in this pulpit, (laughs) one thing we're never going to do is divide the congregation over who likes traditional hymns and who likes contemporary music and then have two completely different services based on personal preferences for music. Ain't going to happen. We're not doing that because we are one body in Christ and we are called to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, and that doesn't mean be friendly and nice to each other. It means realize who we are. Sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and nothing else matters. And so we welcome one another in that spirit and show forth our unity in Christ even with our personal differences because those personal opinions and those disputable matters must never, ever obscure the unity we have in Jesus Christ. Crucified and risen for us and at the Father's right hand. So Paul concludes this section with a benediction. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement, the very same words he used to describe the scriptures right here in these verses, which shows us that the words of scripture are the words of God. Scriptures give us endurance and encouragement because God is the God of endurance and encouragement. May he grant you to live in such harmony, harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together with all of your differences, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's our calling, to live in harmony with one another so as to glorify God with one voice. What is harmony? It is the blending of two or more very different notes, very different individual notes, to make an altogether new and more beautiful sound. God calls us in our life together as his people in Christ to glorify him in a harmonious way, not in a monotonous way. So listen to this. Our personal differences in the context of our unity in Christ actually serve to bring greater glory to God. When we bear with one another, seek to please one another, and build one another up in encouragement, the Holy Spirit blends our differences into harmony. So, beloved, especially as we are now looking forward to a new era in the life of this congregation, let us always remember to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the wonders of the gospel, for what you do in our lives through the truth of your word, the power of your spirit. Bless us, we pray, so that your word of scripture might become a living reality in our lives as individuals and as a corporate body in this congregation. To the praise of Jesus Christ and the glory of your name, through the power of the Spirit, amen. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ,